Can parents rely on schools to spot ADHD in their children? How ADHD presents differently at different stages of your life and how parents can spot ADHD in their own children. These are just some of the questions I asked Janine Perryman, founder of ADHD Wise, in this week's episode. As the numbers go up, it really makes it easier to bring on bigger guests and to create an even better show for you all. So if you are on YouTube, please hit the subscribe button. And if you're on a podcast app, please hit the follow button. And I'll repay the favor by making an even bigger and better show for you all. Thank you so much and enjoy the episode. Janine, thanks so much for joining us. Hi, Alex. Could you set the stage for us and tell us when you were diagnosed and what were the events that caused you to seek assessment? Um, yeah, I can. Um, but if I go off track, just bring me back because <laughs> I might go off on all sorts of tangents. Okay, so my first um, step into recognising that ADHD was part of our family dynamic was my daughter was diagnosed with autism when she was eight. And then when she was 19, struggling, and I did not know how to help her. And I'm looking and I'm thinking, how do I help this young adult to adult? Mm. I didn't know how. I actually approached the GP and said, help. And they referred us to adult services. We lived in Northamptonshire then, so that's where that was. Um, and <laughs> within about 20 minutes of being in the room, they were like, hmm, we think that um, ADHD might be part of this. So, and I was livid because I didn't believe in ADHD. And I was an autism practitioner by that stage. Mm, okay. So I say that with kind of like an oh, because I'm never judgmental of people who aren't there yet because I was a little bit late to the party with regards to my own family. Um, and um, they said, Janine, if we are right, there is everything to gain. And if we are wrong, there is nothing to lose. Let's just, let's explore. And they were absolutely right. And the journey that I went on as a result of... <laughs> having my prejudices checked mm. um, took me on a, a huge journey where I now ADHD is my profession. But after Vicky was diagnosed, then my son Will was diagnosed. And so we had that process in, in, when he was in um, newly into secondary school. And then I was diagnosed. Um, and that came about as a result of sitting with the head teacher because I was working as an unqualified teacher at that point. Mm. And she said to me, I don't want to renew your contract. And I was just like devastated. And she was just like, but for all the right reasons, while we're making things comfortable for you here, you're not going to step out of your comfort zone. You need to qualify as a teacher. The work that you do, the critical thinking that you do, you need to qualify as a teacher. And I was scared, too scared, because... Because there's a professionalism that comes with that. There's a sort of a planning aspect. There's a finishing aspect, which is an ADHD or I didn't have a handle on. As an unqualified, there are things that you can expect somebody else to pick up. Mm. Whereas if you are the qualified teacher, you are the responsible adult. So she, she said, <laughs> we kind of like had a bit of a two-way conversation. And basically, I would say she drew out of me. Um, I wouldn't go so far as to say she she told me, but she drew out of me that not only did I need to go and qualify as a teacher, that I also needed to go and get an autism stroke ADHD assessment. Mm. So I went into my GP surgery and I sat there and I burst into tears, which I do regularly anyway. I'm a crier. Um, and he turned his, his chair around and he was neat and knit me with me. And he said, I said to him, I... I'm so afraid you're not going to take me seriously. And he said, try me. I'm here. Which was absolutely the right thing for him to say. I burst into tears a bit more and I told him what my boss had said and I told him what I thought and, um, and the family history by then because obviously Vicky had been diagnosed and so had Will. And there's, in my extended family, there's ADHD as well. And he said to me, well, I don't think that you do, but you would know better than I would, and your boss definitely would. Mm. So I am going to make the referral, and I am going to market to surgeons, because this might make the difference between you qualifying as a teacher and not, and you deserve that. So um, that was what happened. Mm. I was then sent for an assessment for both autism and ADHD, and... Um, 
my diagnosis is for ADHD with autistic traits. How did you find the assessment process? Well, because I'd had childhood adversity, I was a previous looked after child, they were incredibly thorough with me. I had a very unusual but great experience with the NHS um, because um, they, they they took the tact that they had to be very sure it wasn't related to the adversity, it wasn't related to attachment, that it was genuinely ADHD. So I had two very, very long um, psychological assessments and a psychiatric assessment on the NHS. Mm. They were so thorough with me. I sat and I had executive function challenges um, to, to mark through and it was astonishing to to see where I was struggling. And my then husband um, was just watched and he just said, I cannot comprehend how you can't comprehend that. And I was just like doing my best and I just couldn't follow <laughs> mm. there were some arrows and they were going one way and then they would go another way and then there was like counter sort of directional stuff and I was supposed to follow it around to a certain and I couldn't and so that was just uh, recognizing that my executive function was just not there there were some things I can't couldn't hold my place through all those arrows just as now I understand I can't with mm. regards to time and I can't with regards to money I can't hold my place in those things very well so it was a real eye-opener for for me in terms of the struggles that I was having mm. so thank you for sharing that you you hear so many stories of people getting diagnosed and when they get diagnosed perhaps they're, they're a little bit later on and they go through various stages of grief. When you got your diagnosis, how did, how did you feel? I was really angry um, and hurt. And it's, it's like, it's not like I wasn't expecting it. Um, but you then look through your whole catalogue of your life and you think, would that have happened if this hadn't have happened? Would that have happened if that hadn't have happened? You know, and as I say, you know, look, the look after the child aspect of this. And I had conversations with my mum, who I managed to build a really good relationship with in, in adult life, but was very difficult when I was younger. Um, and, I, and we've had this conversation because, bless her, when I was doing my psychology and all the, all, every single postgraduate qualification I ever did, my mum basically mm. um, proofread my work. <laughs> um, and that was kind of like part of the process for me of, of, of academia was I would write it, I'd send it to my mum to proofread um, and, um, oh, I can feel a tangent coming on. Janine, come back, come back. What was the question, Alex? <laughs> it's typical ADHD, isn't it, the tangent? It's so funny. I think the question was how did you feel after the diagnosis? Yeah, so I had these conversations with my mum mm. um, and, and I asked her, do you think that if you had known then... What, what this was mm. that I would have ended up in the care system and she said no and you wouldn't have ended up living with your dad either she said because we didn't know why you were doing the things that you were doing so we didn't know how to stop you from doing those things and because of the adversity aspect of, of my of my life social social services were involved and they made miss they made wrong assumptions as to why I was doing the things that I was doing mm. And felt like it was a cry for help to see my dad or to everything else, and that my parents must be, my mum must be failing me in some way. And it really wasn't anything like that at all. Mm. It was about impulsivity and it was about emotional dysregulation. It was about not being able to sleep at night. It was about craving dopamine through food and therefore going and stealing food from wherever I, my mum would hide food and I would go and find it. Mm. Um, and I would hunt, 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 knowing that there was some somewhere. Um, and I recognise now that was to do with, like, that was to do with dopamine. And it's just, it's, it's just so many aspects that were just so, could have been dealt with differently if people had known. So as much as you can never say that wouldn't have happened if, because mm. you can't, you can't turn back the clock. But would it have been so bad? I have to say probably not, you know. There would have been some support. There would have, my parents would have understood. Um, and... Um, I may have been spared some of the adversity that I have faced. If you could go back in time with the knowledge that you have of ADHD now and speak to yourself when you were a young girl, what would you tell yourself? Trust yourself. Because they were all saying that I would never amount to anything. That was the message that was coming from school. It was the message I believed. Um, you trust yourself. Mm. You're you're smart. You're just taking a, lo a longer time to get there than, than than the world expects. 
Trust yourself. You're going to be fine. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. I think your ADHD presented differently. At different stages of your Definitely. life? Yeah. Primary school, absolutely hyperactive. The examples I can think of, um, and when I was preparing for this, because I, I know that you asked that sort of like the early presentation, um, I sort of had this wry smile because I remember I was once asked to take the, the register from the classroom to mm. the office. And I walked through the hall, and you know the climbing equipment? Yes. Yeah, they're still in schools, but it's not as not about as much. But you know, the you know, with the the hoops and the mm. and the ladders and and the ropes and everything else. And that was in the hallway, and there was nobody around. <laughs> so I just thought, well, I can take the letter, but I can climb up and down that <laughs> while I'm going, and I did. And I literally got to the top and threw my leg over, and. I heard this journey and I was gripped hold until like the adrenaline starts running through me and I'm basically clinging on going, whoa, I've just been caught. My legs have gone to jelly. Um, and then I had to sort of scale back down um, and they were so angry with me. I actually got, um, I got, um, I had a ruler across my hand three times for that. Really? Gosh. Um, but the thing was, I didn't really know why I'd done it. So why was I not going to do it again? You know, mm. it was sort of like a behavior I didn't understand and therefore... It was an impulsive act. It was just one of those things. I'd have just, I would have climbed back down the other side, picked up the register, gone to the office, and then gone back to the classroom. No one would have been any the wiser. That was how it was in my head. That's not what happened. You're so. getting physically attacked with the ruler across your hand. That's a real, um, you know, exaggerated version of what so many kids with ADHD experience in response to them just acting how they feel like they want to behave yeah there was no forethought and I think that there's sort of often this um thing with with children where we assume their motivation for doing things Mm. um so then middle school which my parents made the decision to move me to a catholic middle school whereas I'd been a very very multicultural um lower school before I'd gone into middle school and I'd gone into this catholic environment where the rules are tight where on the face of it, I would have had more in common with the people I was um, alongside me in, in the classroom. But the reality was I was now a complete outsider and I was in the remedial English class. Mm. And I remember them trying to sort of stretch me and move me into a different set. But I now recognise my executive function meant I didn't manage that at all well. Um, so I kind of went through middle school thinking I was remedial, but also because of the strictness of the environment, I went very much into myself. I became incredibly distracted rather than being distracting, I suppose. I think back to the primary school and like the example I've just given you, but mm. there were also things like we had a swimming pool, like little little ones that schools used to have, um, and everyone would be hiding behind tall chairs trying to keep their, keep their private bits private when they're getting changed and everything else. And I was like, it's just a body. 
And so mm. I'd just be prancing around the place with no inhibition whatsoever. So that was me in primary school. You can imagine that nothing like that ever mm. in, in middle school. You couldn't ever behave like that in, in, a, in, a, in a Catholic environment. And I remember being told off for playing Kiss Chase and landing. Um, a lad called Paul, I caught him and floored him and <laughs> kissed him directly in front of the Virgin Mary. So things like that in the first year of middle school mm. in, a, in a Catholic environment, um, I quickly learned that I needed to be invisible. Mm. So my attention went out the window. So I was still hyperactive in terms of my brain, but my physicality would have been more than inattentive because my attention, I was here hyperactive in my brain and I was thinking about the cat that was crossing the playground. I was thinking about everything other than what was before mm. me. I was, I was um, <laughs> yeah, busy in my brain rather than in lessons. You hear stories of children in school. The metaphor is that they have the ADHD beaten out of them. Not, that's awful, but you sounds like you actually had it with the ruler and Alex and with my parents as well if it was possible to slip a ADHD out of a child I would not have ADHD but parents, people didn't know it's, mm. it was a different era and I have to say it's really important to remember that at that generation of, of parents were doing the best they could with what they had and what they knew mm. so I'm not there's no recrimination there everyone was doing the best they could but the reality is that we know better now so we should be doing better and you, I, when I see the memes that go around sometimes about, you know, they just need a good slap and everything else, well, I'm telling you, if that was possible, I wouldn't have ADHD. Mm. So, I, yeah, I did. Yeah, I would have, it would have been gone. <laughs> what, what do you think some of the myths surrounding ADHD are? Um, I think some of them are around that there's a, a choice aspect for it. I think that... Um, it's seen as it's got deficit and disorder in the in the title um, and it, it kind of is a deficit but kind of not so because it's not a deficit of attention it's a deficit in being able to regulate your attention mm. it's all or nothing attention your t attention goes where the dopamine is and if there's no dopamine in the classroom for example you're going to be disruptive or you're going to escape into your head because you're going to chase the dopamine so it's not a deficit from that perspective at all it's an incredibly low boredom threshold mm. um unless you are into your hyperfocus, and then it's like extreme interest and when you kind of go into a hyperfocus, So um, that would be one of them. Um, I think that one of the things people don't know about ADHD is that um, it is a condition of dysregulation. And I think that D actually does fit, but it's the wrong D because it's about dysregulation. Mm. Colin Foley, who's the training director at ADHD Foundation, was the first person I heard say ADHD is a condition of dysregulation. And it changed every training session I've delivered ever since that. Because yes, it is. It's emotion, dysregulated emotions. It's dysregulated attention. It's dysregulated um, um, impulsivity as well. Because actually, most of the people that you speak to who've got the inattentive, uh, sorry, who've got the hyperactive, impulsive type of ADHD um, will tell you that there are times when they just can't do the do. They can't start mm. the trouble initiating. But that's part of your impulse control because either we're operating where we don't think enough and we act or we're thinking too much and then we don't act. Mm. They're part of the same pendulum as far as I see it. I will say that's part, part of how I see it. It's not necessarily how it is, but that's how I see it, that there is part of the same pendulum of dysregulated impulse control because it's not like we can't manage our impulses to a point it's that we're dysregulated in terms of when we can and can't do that and it goes the other way as well so we actually then can't act on the impulse to do something even when we want to do something sometimes we can't make ourselves get up and do do it because mm. the impulse is dysregulated um and the emotional aspect of adhd i think that's something that we don't talk about enough that it is about dysregulated impulse control. Mm. And that was in the DSM for whatever we've called ADHD throughout history until 1968 when they took it out, presumably because you can't measure emotions or there weren't measures to, to measure emotions back then. Mm. So they took the emotional liability, liability, sorry, not liability, liability out of, of ADHD and that left you with ADHD being misattributed to being a behavioural disorder for quite a long time it's changed in terms mm. of the nhs website and everything says better now it's not quite right but it's better um and it just takes so long for this information to come back down through history and through the the pipeline to actually create a change on the bottom line with practitioners but it is a lot to do with emotional dysregulation 
suppose you see that emotional dysregulation causing problems in adulthood, in relationships, yeah. friendship, maintain, maintenance. Yep. How does that emotional dysregulation show up in kids? Mm. Um, so we're always telling children to not be angry and to not be upset. Actually, be angry, be upset. Always validate the emotion before you try to change the behaviour that came from it. We're supposed to be angry. We should be angry. There are lots of things in, in our children's lives and actually in adult lives that are worthy of being angry about. Whatever is, Can you think of anything in life that didn't change because somebody got angry about it but had the skills to be able to use that anger, channel it? Mm. And yet we tell children not to be angry. No, the anger's fine. But the problem is, is that you've got anger that turns to rage. And that's, we then say it's not okay to be that angry don't be so upset, don't cry, and all of these things. No, you do feel the emotions. The emotions are always valid. We're human beings. We're supposed to feel all of the emotions. They're all valid. They all have their place. They all have their strength. You always validate the emotion before you change, before you even try to attempt to help a child to regulate their behaviour. It's the behaviour you want to change, not the emotion, because the emotion's always valid. How do, how do, if you are a parent and you s listen to what you just said and you see that in your child, what steps can a parent take to, to start changing that behaviour? Oh, well, that comes down to curiosity um, and connection. And to try to change a child's behaviour when you, they're not feeling connected to you is not really going to work. But if you can be curious rather than critical mm. in those moments... Um, just before we came online, you were, you were mentioning about when you, you got really angry when you'd gone to school and you'd sort of innocently taken in some some nails thinking something and then there was a negative consequence and you got scolded for it. So mm. it's kind of that. It's that, that that they made a judgment as to why you did it. Whereas if they'd been curious and said, okay, Alex, tell me what you were thinking before you did that, you could they could change that behaviour and they could encourage you to think before you took things into school. You know, mm. to sort of make you think rather than to to be critical of you. You caught the, you remember it how many years later? Yeah, 30 years. And it's just to give some context. When I was at school, we used to dig in the dirt and my parents were having some work done on their house. And I thought it was a logical idea to take some nails from the work that my parents were having done into school to help me dig in the mud. And some one of the children slipped and cut themselves on the nail. And the teacher wanted to know where the nails came from. I said, I brought them in. And the, I remember the teacher shouting at me. And, you know, probably, I guess, quite rightly so, nails are dangerous. But my mind in that moment was rage and injustice because mm. I brought those in innocently, actually practically, to help have fun. So, yeah, that, that's, that's the example you mentioned. Yeah. And so would it, wouldn't it have been so much better if they'd gone, okay, Alex, tell me what you were thinking when you brought these nails in? Because um, that wasn't the smartest idea. Let's work through this. Mm. You'd have gone, oh, okay. And you'd have, you'd have said, well, I was thinking uh, they were going to help me to dig. I was gonna, it was going to help me to dig. Mm. So, and they'd have gone, right, okay. Can we not do that? And then you'd not do that. And then you wouldn't have that feeling of rage that you're then carrying around with you. And then if you're carrying that pool of rage around with you because you're feeling that injustice and then just one other thing's happened in that in that that day that week that month your tolerance for the next injustice is lower because of what you've just experienced so i would always say to parents be curious rather than critical and you definitely want to deal with connection before you're dealing with correction mm. That's very, very simplistic because I run sort of courses <laughs> on this, but it's just that's, that's, that's the, a, a snippet. How can parents build a deeper connection with their child? Yeah, um, that would be about being their ally. With my son, Will, um, that's the most obvious example because obviously I've got three children. And by the way, all three are now diagnosed with, with ADHD. Mm. Um, but we had to go private for Becca, but that's another story. Um with Will, I often had to endure the um, the walk of shame as um, there's a, a lady who I used to, to work with called Jo. She and I came up with this together just to credit where it came from and, and say that it's not entirely mine. And it was to do with the, the walk of shame um, when you're standing on the playground and the teacher comes out and they come up to you and they say, hi, can I have a word? And you have to follow the teacher back in and you feel like all of the other parents are looking at you and judging. Um, whether they are or not, it's maybe another story, but you can be sure a few of them were. 
mm. and it wasn't entirely imagined. But you feel that walk of shame going back in. Then you go in and you're sat there and the teacher tells you what your son has done. And both of you look at this child and you frown. Um, and as he would tell you, if he was sat here, he would say, I never really got a chance to reset. I was always in trouble. It was like I would be in trouble at home because I'd been in trouble at school. Um, and then I would go into school the next day and I would be in trouble again. And I would come home and I would still be in trouble. And what changed was me. Mm. I dropped the rope and I decided to get up my son's side. Um, and so when I was then started to be called into school and they'd say, can I have a word? And I would deal with all of that. I would sit there and I'd say, okay, I agree. That behavior was not acceptable. What are we going to do as the adults in this child's life to help him to not do this? And that was when everything changed. Mm. That was when I started to be able to communicate with my son in a way where he was able to say to me what he needed. I moved from the critical to curious and I became his ally. He knew whatever happened with him from that moment onwards, he had me no matter what. Mm. There's a whole story I could tell you about that, but if I do, I'll start crying. So <laughs> I won't tell you that story, but it is online. I have shared mm. that story um, around what I call the no, no matter what, where my son and I got into into the situation where he, he realised that I was in his corner no matter what. And that was the point at which I stood a chance of addressing some of the behaviours that we didn't want and promoting mm. some of the ones that we did. Share the story if, if you like. It's up to you if you don't want to. Well, um, he was in year five of... Um, of primary of of um, of uh, what they call it primary school, and um, he was struggling, and there was a, there was trouble at school every day, and there was trouble at home every day, and he's got a twin sister, and that that sort of conflict between the two of them was there, and he would. Um, be quite aggressive and shouty with her or he would try to get her attention in a negative way rather than a positive way mm. which we've moved on from massively because he's 21 now um, but um, I'd had I had a day off and I had gone to a coffee shop with a friend and they were selling teddy bears cuddly toys mm. and I picked up this dog and um, I decided to get this dog for Will and Will came home from school. Um, it wasn't me that picked him up that particular day, so I was already home. And I said, I sat on his bed and I said, this is for you. His name is no matter what. I want you to know I'm in your corner no matter what. This is hard. We're going to get through it together. And I'm in your corner no matter what. Remembering this is pre-ADHD diagnosis mm. for him um, and for me actually as well. And um, he looked at me in such a way that I realised that was news. And like every parent, I loved my child unconditionally, but he didn't know that I was going to be in his corner no matter what. It was news to him and just that look on his face. And it was the beginning of the change. So I am always telling parents that that's what you need to give your children is that sense that you've got them. No matter what. No, you don't have to tolerate all of their behaviour. Yes, you're going to punish them for, well, not punish, punish maybe not the right word. You're going to challenge the behaviours that are challenging. Mm. You're not going to let them get away with stuff because that's not your responsibility. As a parent, your responsibility is to raise some, a, a, a young person into an adult. So you're not going to let them get away with stuff. You're going to be on those sorts of things, but you're on the same team. So there's like all sorts of things I, I figured out with him once we were on the same team that I never would have mm. figured out if we weren't on the same team. But it was one of those things where, because I'd learned that as a, as a parent, um, and then of course I've gone on to, to, to be a teacher and was obviously working as an unqualified in that meantime anyway. And I remember sitting um, when one of my students had absolutely kicked off. Tables had gone flying and they were sat in a, in a, in a quiet room and they were brooding and I positioned myself where I was safe but close um so I could get up and I could get myself out if 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 he escalated again and he sat there and he said I'm sorry miss and I said it's okay you're having a tough day and you know what I'm here because you matter and it was like again that look they give you back that shows you that's news that's awful when you stop and think about it the children don't know that the adults in their life 
are there for them no matter what, that they're entitled to take up that space in your emotions, in your in the way you're supposed to steer them because parenting is never going to be easy. No one never told you that parenting was going to be easy, but it's a lot harder with ADHD. Mm. Teaching too, you know, I specifically chose to work in in special needs. I specifically qualified with a with the specialism. So I'm a specialist teacher in mm. in this. And it was, you know, the the, the kids taught me more than an education never did the qualification was mm. the qualification it was proving that you i knew what i knew but it was the young people i worked with that taught me everything comes from your own kids as well so it's like that whole thing of they didn't know they mattered and mm. you know as soon as i twig, twigged that i can reflect back to me and i can recognize that was what i didn't have i didn't have unconditional love or at least didn't feel like i did to be fair my parents loved me but i didn't live with them for a while you know, so I'd face, I'd face the ultimate rejection there, hadn't I? Mm. You know, so I know what it's like to not feel like you matter. And these kids, my son, the students that I've worked with, yeah, when you tell a child they matter and they look back at you like that's news, you can really see what's wrong. Mm. Thank you for sharing that. I could <laughs> tell that was difficult. Well, I've shared it before and it was actually part of a talk that I've done and I've got a photograph of... Will as a young adult, cuddling no matter what, you know, and he still has no matter what. And um, last I checked, although Will doesn't live with me now, mm. um, last I checked, no matter what, still lived in his bed. So that shows you how much that day, that act, that connection mm. with my child made a difference to him because that's you know, still our relationship now. Mm. I think there'll be a lot of people listening who will take that story and, and find a way to weave that strategy into their own family unit? Just check, because we assume our parents know, sorry, mm. we assume as parents that our children know, mm. and it's not necessarily so. And it certainly isn't the case as a teacher either, that every mm. child knows that they matter to you. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. Do you think parents can rely on schools to spot ADHD? Well, there's no universal truth to that, but I would say no, because most schools, most teachers have not had any training on ADHD, which is wrong, not just for the children with ADHD, but actually for teachers. Mm. I think teacher stress levels are high enough to not know why the children in your class are doing the things that they're doing means you're ill-equipped and therefore you're more stressed than you need to. If you know why they're doing it, you stand a chance of getting them to not do it. But if you don't know why, what are you left with? Sanctions that are not working, change nothing, and basically just mean you're penalising a child for something beyond their control. Mm. If you understand why they're doing it, you maybe stand a chance. But no, there's not training on, on this. And even when there is, it's not necessarily on how to spot it. It's, it's on how to support it once they've got a diagnosis, typically anyway. You know, I, I know that that's not always the case. And I see um, a lot of my work um, is alongside the ADHD Foundation. I know how they train. I know they do cover those sorts of things, identifying it as well as supporting it once it's been identified. Um, but typically that's not, that's not there. And teachers have such a big role to play in the mm. diagnostic process because they're usually asked to fill out a questionnaire on the child's presentation. They don't understand what is ADHD and what isn't. And if they've also got some prejudice and misinformation about it, they're not filling those inf that information out correctly. And sometimes it's because I've had, seen it before where teachers are, I know I am, 
very, very positive about the young people they're looking after, the young people in their class. They can see their potential, even if they can't always see their struggles. So if they're filling those questionnaires in, looking at their strengths, and they're aware of what they are doing, but they're not really thinking about what they're not doing, which actually, to look at what a child is not doing is, is counterintuitive to, to many people. We tend to be looking at what they are doing and, and working on that. Mm. They're achieving this, they're achieving that. The children who are having a problem are not necessarily the same children who are causing a problem. And just because they're co not causing a problem doesn't mean they're not having a problem. So mm. no, I don't think that we can, at the moment, unfortunately, rely on teachers to be um, the the best source of, of knowledge and on, on this, to be supportive of it. No, I don't think we can. But that's not to say that none are, because a lot are. And a lot mm. I work with a lot of Zenkos who are absolutely amazing, as well as being quite critical of others so um it's not necessarily the case that even the senko will be clued up mm. on adhd is, is it quite difficult to spot adhd when it can present so differently in different people i've, I've spoken to so many people just on this podcast and and you know they, they 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 sit at the back of the classroom they they don't say a word they don't act out at all so this is the thing about becoming invisible which is what i said to you i was in in middle school it was most important to me to become invisible um, because it didn't feel psychologically safe to be seen. Mm. Um, so I masked massively and I hid. I hid me. I just wanted to be invisible and survive, literally just get your head down, do what you need to do, get out every day. And then in, in upper school, I basically stopped attending. So, <laughs> yeah, I would have been classed as a, um, a what was classed as school refusal and now it's sort of the, the thing is emotion-based school avoidance and I think both of those are incorrect I think it should be more school attendance difficulties and let's not assume why a child isn't attending and let's actually ask the questions let's look at the push and pull factors to that I think this is a nice time to do the new segment of the show okay uh, which is called the washing machine of woes I think and this is hilarious yeah <laughs> it's inspired by a quote from the great American author called Regina Brett and she said, if we all throw our problems in a pile and saw each other's, we'd grab ours back. So the idea is that you hear other people's ADHD problems and it makes you feel that you're not dealing with yours alone or that perhaps yours aren't actually as bad as you think. Okay. But instead of throwing them on a pile, I threw them in a washing machine. <laughs> because I feel like the washing machine is a good visual representation. We love a, we love a prop. We love a prop. There we go. And if I reach into the washing machine... And I pull out a woe from the ADHD community. It's like a cross between um, Room 101 and um, the Worry Monster. It is. Yeah. This is very therapeutic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, don't. It's what... brilliant. The washing machine of woe <laughs> is perfect. Of woes. I'll read out what the woe is from the washing machine today. Does anyone else experience brain fatigue? I can do a day's work, but it breaks my brain because it's a constant effort to focus. At the end of the day, my brain is finished. I have literally nothing left to give. I don't understand how neurotypicals can do the same amount of work and still have more to give. Yeah, okay. So I, ugh, um, that's, it's, that's quite sort of lengthy and it's got like a few facets to it, hasn't it? But I think the, the brain fatigue, yes, absolutely. Um, I spent the day on Friday with Dr. Tony Lloyd from ADHD Foundation and Steph, who's one of his um, members of staff, and, um, and my colleague Claire. And we were working through the coaching diploma for ADHD that we're, we're, we're developing. And... Um, I left Tony feeling um, absolutely fine. And I'm walking from, having said goodbye to Tony, I walked, carried on walking down towards the train station. And I just felt this feeling of tiredness hit me. And then I was aware I'd actually given my all all day. Mm. And I think that's the thing is when we're in the zone, we are giving our all. We don't moderate that very well. Neurotypicals typically don't find things as difficult as we do. So, for example, we receive an email and we have to respond to it, right? We think about that email mm. or we get annoyed by that email. We're emotionally dysregulated, so we might be more emotional than other people about it. We don't know what information to put in and what to keep out. We're trying to moderate all of those things. Um, so just an email 
is it can be more more difficult for us to contend with especially if it's coming at a time when we were supposed to be working on something else and it's distracted us from that and then we've got to get back to the thing that we were supposed to be doing because we were distracted by this email so if emails take you off track if a phone call takes you off track mm. getting back to where you were is more exhausting so yes absolutely mm. um it makes perfect sense to me and we we came in here today and it was just like how was your journey and i was just like it the journey itself was absolutely fine and you said okay but because you could tell there was more to that story and I was like I'm exhausted mm. I'm exhausted just from the fatigue of having to get on th- including the underground three trains um think about my belongings sitting on the underground not daring to take my bag off my bag because I'm so afraid of what I might leave behind because I'm trying to hold everything in my head mm. because that doesn't come naturally to us so yeah even so much as that which to everybody else would just be like meh to us, we have more to think about because we've got these <laughs> flipping ridiculously busy brains. Definitely. So we have to quieten them down to do the one thing that the job requires of us. It's knackering. It's so interesting. I, I relate to, to what you just said and, and that particular woe a lot. Just coming up today on the train, I, I got a text from, I won't say what it said, but it, it was a text from somebody and it was rather confrontational. Mm. And that really threw me. There's no need the for RSD it, is there? kicked in. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I've got to sit down with two guests today. That's my focus. And it really threw me off, which created, created a lot of anxiety. And actually, by the time I got to the studio where we are today, I was mentally exhausted and I wasn't actually focused on what I should be focused on. Yeah. I managed to sort of pull myself back in. I think the adrenaline kicked in as, as the, the time approached that the guest was going to arrive. And I, I managed to refocus. And but when I do these days, I film two episodes in one day in London, when I go home after these days, I'm almost non-verbal yeah. with my partner. My brain is just absolutely frazzled. And I think that's one of the things that's misunderstood about being non-verbal as well is that it is is not a choice, but it's a mechanism. You know, it's it is when it's too much, um, and therefore you you can't find the words. Actually, that's incredibly common um, for us because we are absolutely spent. Sometimes I just look at uh, look at my, my my partner or my children. I just go. Nothing. I've got nothing left. Mm. You've got, there's nothing left. Feed me. Put a blanket over me and let me recover. <laughs> yeah. Honestly, when I get home after these days, all I want to do is sit on the sofa and watch TV. I need yeah. the stimulus coming in. There's nothing for me to give. Decompression time. Yeah. And, and I think that we, we need to recognize that that is part of the fatigue that comes from having a brain that's operating differently, it's all or nothing. Mm. So if you're here, you're here. Mm. And you're not just here, you're here. Yes. You know, And it's yes. it's not the same thing as mm. it is for neurotypicals as far as I understand it because I'm not neurotypical. Mm. But I obviously speak to people who are and um, you know have conversations. And say, what's this like for you? It's just like, well, I'll just, I'll just do that. And then So you think in a straight line. You can think, oh, I've got to do this first, and then I've got to do that, then that, no, then I'll have a bit of lunch, no, no, no. And you can think through that, and you can then go and do that. And yeah. Mm. Well, we can't, can we? That's not how it's working for us. Yeah, it's punctuated by the fact that you know, for example, that you've got these two podcasts. But most people are not going to be thrown like you were thrown by that message. Those interruptions that come in that basically you're like, I haven't got the emotional, mental energy for that interruption. Mm. And I don't answer my phone to unknown numbers because I can't cope with that at all. I'm like, nope, I I can't because I, I don't know what it's going to be. I don't know whether I can manage to incorporate into my day. You can leave a mm. voicemail, you can send me an email and I will address them as and when I can. But I cannot allow myself to be interrupted by a phone call. And you're right, sometimes when messages come through, particularly about social media and they are confrontational, um, and you're thinking, hang on a minute, I'm doing my absolute best here. Mm. Am I perfect? No. Did I deserve that? No. I don't mind the feedback but I do expect the feedback to come in a dignity way. I don't expect it to just come and, and be callous. No, I'm not, I don't know. I have no tolerance for that whatsoever. Mm. You know, and it takes so much out of us because we have to regulate our emotions and our emotions are not regulated. <laughs> Honestly, it's so true. And receiving that text this morning actually taught me a lesson. And that's me now being super careful what I expose myself to on these days mm-hmm. because I owe it to the guests. I owe it to the show. I owe it to the listeners to turn up and give the best version of me to get the best interview if i come and sit down and i am dysregulated i'm in a rsd flare-up and that's not fair for the show and and you and and everyone involved um so next time i'm i'm my phone's off 
I'm can't take the risk of something because I know a text like that, it was a silly little text that actually now I've calmed down and I've analyzed it. It didn't mean any harm. But in that moment, it completely threw me and it nearly knocked me off course for the whole day, which is so super, super risky. I'm ask you a question. Mm. Did it kind of like tap into those injustices you experienced as a child, the 20,000 additional negative messages we achieve, we acquire as mm. children? Um, does it sort of tap I, I, into some like, of that crit- critique? It was, it was someone who, they put the word please at the end of a, end of a question. And I don't know why, when, and I, I always associate the, if, when the word please is put on the end of a sentence. I always read that as subliminal, like, aggression. And actually, I don't think it was. But in that moment, I took it at that, and then that really threw me. Well, I'm a literacy lead, and I'd say I'd question whether that's right, Alex. But, <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, if, if that's kind of, like, how you've always read it, and if that's how you write, then you're going to assume people are going to write the same way as you do. But, mm. yeah, I think that it, we can often be tweaked by things that have happened in our past, and sometimes it's not. Alex as you are now that's sort of like tweaked and and triggered Mm. it's a previous version of Alex that's got an unresolved irk somewhere Mm. amazing and it's I think it's really responsible for the quite drastic mood swings that I certainly experience as part of ADHD and and the the slightest thing like that message this morning before that message came in I was had a smile on my face I was doing the research for the guests enjoying the, the, the the sunshine that message came in instantly I was a different person. So it's, it's quite dangerous when you've got something to do that day to really protect your space. I think it's important to do that and it's really good wisdom to recognise that. Yeah, mm. yeah, it is. It's, uh... how, how do you think parents could identify ADHD in, in, their, in their children? Just doing a bit of a, a handbrake turn on the conversation there. Okay, well, I will typically say that parents are the expert in their child. If a parent is thinking that a child may have ADHD, they are probably there or thereabouts. Parents don't understand neurodiversity well enough to know whether that's definitely the case, but they're recognising there's a difference. So going to a professional who can give them some support and some guidance with regards to how to sort of filter out some of those differences to look at neurodiversity screeners for example where it's just like okay well there's aspects of this and there's aspects of that and then they know which road they're going down to find out more um but in adhd in your child it's about them not being in control of themselves so they might not be in control of their emotions they may be they may seem excessive the child who is quick to cry doesn't make sense quick to empathy as well actually because uber empathy that's how that's how i refer to it it's not how it's always referred but it's a janineism is uber empathy where we feel the injustice the pain the the triumph even of somebody else almost as strongly as if it's our own that's actually emotional dysregulation because that's not how the rest of the world sees it. And actually, you've got to go carefully here because it can, you can, that can come across quite ableist because that's to say there is a correct way and that ours is, is the wrong way. And I don't think that it is. I am very glad for the fact that I get as angry as I do because it's made me the adult that I am. Mm. I'm angry for you know myself as a child and I will always look out for the, for the children now. So I'm kind of glad of that dysregulation if it's dysregulation. I think it's different regulation. Um, but the, the, the uber empathy, the excessive empathy, the, 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 the feeling the pain and discomfort of others and then being quick to cry or quick to defend because you feel that sense of injustice for the other person almost as strongly as if it's your own. That's actually a sign of ADHD that most people don't realise. The going from anger to rage and that not making sense, and um, that can be that that sort of thing. So that's the emotion side of things, mm. um, and obviously the excitability and the activity as well. That, that those are some of the things, some of the signs. The acting without thinking and just feeling bewildered, like and you're you're saying, "What were you thinking when you did that?" And it's like, "I don't know," because the answer is they weren't. So it's like they weren't thinking, and you're asking, "What were you thinking?" They're like, I "Don't know," and maybe they had a thought like you did, and maybe they didn't. Maybe they acted on impulse, mm. you know, and there's just so much in there to, to unpick. And parents will be looking in there, we're thinking, there is something different here. I would always correct, I would, because sometimes they come to me and they're like, there's something wrong here. And I'm like, not wrong, different. And then we unpick what that might be. 
Um, but there's, I, I wish I could give you sort of like a, a list of things that are just purely ADHD, but you've got to recognise that ADHD is highly correlated with the rest of the neurodivergent conditions, neurodiverse conditions, however your language is. Um, and it's never the case that it's just ADHD. There will always be other aspects to it. They may struggle with noises in the environment. That can be part of auditory discrimination. There's just so much mm. in this picture. So I would say that there needs to be an inquiry to a knowledgeable person quite quickly who understands all of the neurodiverse conditions, not just ADHD, so that you can unpick some of those things and know that you're going down the right path. Mm. Do you think parents should speak to the child about neurodiversity? When they're, or do you think it's not a good idea to plant that seed in their mind that they are perhaps different? Oh, I think children already know they're different if they're different, um, depending on the age, but they, they tend to develop that. But I would encourage positivity around neurodiversity and knowledge about, about it that is not necessarily based on the home. So, for example, the Captain Underpants series of books um and the, he's also written dog man his name's dove pilkey mm. um and in all of his books if any, a parent picks up one of their books because boys in particular absolutely love that there's an, there's a little note in there about about adhd and dove was told he needed to stop writing silly stories he'd never make a career doing that mm. well his teacher was incorrect right so the kids love those sorts of things there's on the adhd foundation website there's stories that never stand still and the umbrella gang um and it's helping children to it's having resources available it's talking about the likes of emma watson and and um tom hanks um and being able to say they, they've got adhd aren't they? you know they're doing well you know sort of they've got these challenges emma watson being the classic case of somebody who's angry she's quite an activist with regards to some feminist issues amongst others um it's because she's angry so it's it's a beautiful thing so sort of showing them that that, that these people are, are doing okay so finding those positive role models and just including neurodiversity just as you would with regards to the fact there are different religions just as you would with regards to the fact there are different skin colours. Mm. You know, it is it's a question of including it in your language, in your discussions, so that it just becomes normal. Because then when they're like, oh, I, I, I think that that might be me. So it's like, oh, really? Okay, well, let's talk about that. And it's they already know that the parents have got them and they're okay. Because they've already had the example told to them, this is okay, neurodiversity is okay. It's okay to not have the same brain as everybody else. All of the amazing work you're doing, you must get frustrated when you see in the press occasionally people saying ADHD is just a trend. Well, that's said by people who are, are happy in their little comfort zone of, of keeping the marginalised marginalised, right? Because, you know, um, I would say to you that the challenges that I face as an ADHD are, are in some regards, disabling. Not in all regards, but in some and um, if you want to, I, I can't understand how, you know, we aren't up in arms about that in terms of about protected characteristics, et cetera, because that's not acceptable to be diminishing my, my, my protected characteristics because that's what they are. So I find it really fascinating that we aren't um, forcefully but um, with dignity addressing some of these issues and saying actually do you know how unacceptable it is to marginalize a marginal group like that to diminish their experience and to basically say that i don't exist um or that my way of seeing the world doesn't exist because you don't understand it how does that how can that ever be okay i suppose it's a bit like when someone might say to an adhd child that they're too much too much and not enough tends to be the, the thing that most ADHD was walk around with. Um, and, you know, I think back to being a teacher and some, I know that sometimes I was quite hard to be around for other teachers who were teaching the same corridor as me because such exuberance, so much excitement and um, passion for learning meant my classroom was rarely quiet. And I can recognise in itself that the, some of the ways, because I, I would literally bounce, come break time, the kids would go out on the playground and I'd be bouncing going, you never <laughs> guess what, this one just mastered this. Because I was that passionate about teaching. Mm. Um, and I know my colleagues can sometimes find that very difficult and actually suggested it wasn't particularly professional at times. So am I too much in that situation? Or... Am I being perfectly me? 
know that that's too much. I appreciate that because obviously with the children that I've got, there are times where I'm like, you need to let me breathe before we before we progress here, you know, and helping children to understand they can't just chat, 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 and there needs to be time. But that's like about creating time to talk. Are they too much or are they too much for you in that moment? It's a difficult one, isn't it? But I don't think anyone's ever too much. If they're being allowed to be who they are and space is being created for people to be who they are, they're never too much. As that goes back to the try to change behaviour with curiosity rather than going back to that example when I was at school. If If your child is doing something that perhaps needs to be corrected, then to ask them why why they're doing it that way rather well, than tell them to do why? it the way? Because my response when I was told this in the feedback when I was teaching was, what do you want me to do instead? And they, their response was, you are absolutely right. Nothing, you're doing it right. Um, but that made them sort of stop and think about it because it was just like, what do you want me to do instead? Because that's part of me. Um, what do you want me to do instead? You know, I'd gone in the break time. It's not like I'd bounce into the middle of their lesson. Mm. Um, you know, what do you want me to do instead? I might have to pick which members of staff I go to with those sorts of things. And if there's no one around, I might, I might actually go out and onto the playground and share that excitement with the kids because they're always happy to be on the receiving end of, of, of my exuberant excitement for their, their sudden progress. Because when you work in special needs, um, although I, albeit that I don't particularly like that, I would say different needs, um, you, you, when you see progress... When you see something that was beyond a child suddenly be within the child, it's just the best feeling. Where's the, that's just huge dopamine. That's just a huge sense of purpose because I get my dopamine mostly from feeling purposeful. So it's just like it's just so much, and it's just you. You could have. You, I was just the best feeling in the world. And did I want to share it with other people? Yeah. So am I too much? I don't know. Maybe I need to channel it somewhere else, but not too much. Just need to go and channel it somewhere else. Maybe. What's the most impulsive thing you've ever done? You can't ask me that. (laughs) The most impulsive thing I've ever done. And my mind has gone completely blank, but I think that's probably protecting myself. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Booking myself onto a business trip. That meant I ended up going to Abu Dhabi, staying in a nice hotel, um as part of a radio advertising campaign so it was i had something i was going to have to pay for mm. didn't really have the funds to pay for at the time which i booked it i kind of banked on being able to backfill the finances to to fund the trip i had an amazing time i drank bollinger in the burj dal arab and had an amazing time um but then obviously had to come back and the price for that and get the money yeah absolutely and and some things like that are are difficult but on the other hand some of those things are what have got me to where I've got to so it's a question of having them in balance and I would not say to you that I've always got them in balance that's something that I haven't an ongoing challenge I have to sort of stop and, and even with regards to internet shopping it's like you know I have to ask myself, which do I need most, the money or the thing? And if the answer is the money, then I don't buy the thing. And if the answer is the thing, I do buy the thing. But having to put sort of like these mechanisms in place to check my impulse. I think that's incredible advice to finish on. Janine, it's been fascinating. I've certainly learned a ton. And I'm sure that people listening will, will be so grateful for you spilling your knowledge over with, your, with, with us today. Are you telling me that was actually an hour? I think it was, yeah. You know, it feels like about 20 minutes, but that's time blindness for you. (laughs) (laughs) Shoots past, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Janine, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. It's been lovely to be here. Thanks for doing what you're doing, Alex. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. 
Shopify.com slash work. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.